Hello everyone and welcome to our day five lecture. Uh, today what we're going to be doing is building on our knowledge of indigenous history by really thinking more critically about how we look at the past. And so I begin with our first slide. Sometimes our perspective on history changes with the sources we examine and the places that we look. So let's get started. Okay, so First Nations. How will they get there? By land, by sea, and from multiple directions and across generations. So first I wanted to begin by reaffirming who are we talking about. So um, historically we call them Indians because Columbus thought he was in India. That's the only reason why we call them Indians. Um, because that was a term that was used by colonists to speak to indigenous to refer to indigenous people some indigenous people began to use that term indians and so there i'm going to about to give you many different terms that you can use um, indigenous is the adjective to describe people that are that are indigenous to a certain place meaning that they are from that place they are born there they are the original settlers there first nations is a term uh, that's often used to describe indigenous people as far as um, referring to them as collective groups. Um, so First Nations meaning the First Nations in the U.S. Uh, native is a word uh, that means uh, that you're from a certain place. It's a kind of a complicated word in U.S. history because native is a word that by the late 1800s white people uh, would actually use that word to uh, critique what they perceived were non-white new immigrants like uh, Russians or Germans. And so they argued that we Irish or we British are native. Um, so it's a complicated word, but native just means that you're from a place. And then Native American is probably the most, one of the most well-known pol politically correct terms to use of Native American. Um, I would say that none of them are perfect. If you're ever talking to someone um, who's indigenous in person, always ask them how, what they would prefer you call them. Uh, the terms that they use and use those terms. You can talk to six different Native American people and have six different terms. You always respect people and the way that they would like to be called. Um, so the I frequently will use the words indigenous, First Nations, Native, and Native American. So uh, when even when we were watching the documentary 500 Nations, uh, that they use the term, the, all of those terms, I believe, in the documentary. So how did they get here? Let's look at the map. What we can see here are possible migration routes of the first Americans. Uh, now, I think that the only issue with this map is that what, when I, if we haven't learned already, I have some issues with maps and what they're saying. And so this map is uh, correctly saying that there's a migration of Asia to the Americas. In fact, descendants of Korea. Um, are the ancestors of indigenous people in the Americas today. Um, however, the only issues is that these migration routes appear to be linear um, and that they have categorized them in such a way as so as to appear that at different eras, in different eras, there are different migration routes. Um, and so I would say that the only reason why we need to problematize that is because uh, anthropologists have many different, and archaeologists have many different arguments about the first uh, settlers of what we now call the United States. Um, but yes, in general, they came by sea. We know that the uh, people from what we now call Asia migrated through Polynesia um, and that we have evidence that there are Chinese artifacts that are have been found on the west coast of what is now the United States as well as in some parts of Central and South America. We know that they, the most common argument about how did they get here is that they crossed uh, Beringia, the land strait uh, that was at the top. Let me... Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. I don't want to skip ahead. 
But anyway, so we have that they cross up at the north in what is now uh, where Russia meets Alaska. Uh, and so what, what we know for sure is that they moved all throughout the Americas. We can find them from 30,000, more than 30,000 years ago, all across the Americas. Um, I think there's often historically a presumption, you know, definitely more than 10 years ago, that the first settlers came across the Bering Strait, which is that icy land bridge. They were following um, large uh, animals like mastodon, um, uh, other animals like that, Siberian tooth tiger, and uh, that they followed them all the way to the Americas. And so now what we're understanding is that, sure, some people did, um, but that wasn't always the case, that they built communities along the way, that they also... It was very important to them to keep back in touch with their roots because whenever they were ready to couple and build new families, they would often cycle back to the original where their extended families are back sort of where they were migrating from and partner with them and move on. So we have a lot, they went to a lot of different places. They left a lot of different objects, which you can see from the documentary and maybe a little bit more today. Um, and we don't exactly know what drove them there. We, I think that, that one thing that historians, archeologists hopefully can agree upon is that it's not just driven by climate, but for in some aspects, I believe that they were driven by just interest, interest in travel. Um, that some of the reasons, some of the things that we have found, for example, like, uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to use? Dissecting poop. We've been able to dissect fossilized human poop. Um, and what we find, I believe that's on the next slide. No, no. That's not on the next slide. Oh, darn. I, I can't believe I didn't. Uh, oh, no, I did include this. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to the next slide after the map. So the quote we have there, it says, For decades, scientists thought the first Americans were Asian big game hunters who tracked mammoths and other large prey eastward across a now submerged landmass known as Beringia that joined northern Asia to Alaska. Arriving in the Americas some 13,000 years ago, these colonists were said to have journeyed rapidly overland across an ice-free corridor that stretched from the Yukon to southern Alberta, leaving behind their distinctive stone tools across what is now the contigu contiguous U.S. Contiguous U.S. Archaeologists call these hunters the Clovis people after a site near Clovis, New Mexico, where many of their tools came to light. And one of the homework assignments is getting you to actually look and hear about one of those Clovis tools, a Clovis spear point that's now at the British Museum. So you can learn more about this, this quote and where it comes from in this article from the Scientific American. But let's look at Beringia on the next slide. Again, as I was telling you before, it's where Russia meets what is now uh, Alaska. But the darker brown, which you can see, is where the actual land is currently. But... Beringia was connected through ice and uh, as part of this vast landscape that created this land bridge um, that we, well, it's now separated by water, but created a land bridge that allowed them to be able to cross over from Asia to the Americas. So there's the presumption uh, that the clo is the Clovis theory that there's uh, hunter-gatherers, they're pushed by cold weather, um, and seeking large game. There's farmers after that, that the, the first are hunter-gatherers, then they become farmers, then they become city builders, and then that's what we call civilization. So a lot of times the way historically they told this story is that there is a, a, a progression of civilization, that you can't be civilized if you're hunter-gatherers. Um, the Clovis first hypothesis states that no humans existed in the Americas prior to Clovis, which dates from around 13,000 years ago, and that the distinct Clovis lithic technology is the mother technology of all other stone artifact types later occurring in the New World. Now, the current theory, that's, it's out, we, again, these are all theories, which I think is really fascinating, is that we just don't know for sure. Uh, and so the current theory is that there's pre-Clovis life, which is what you could have seen on that map. 
of the 30,000 years ago. Um, and the pre-Clovis life sort of inherently argues that, yes, there are hunter-gatherers. There are also farmers that simultaneously continued connections back to their homelands, were unsure of their, motor, of their motive, but that both hunter-gatherers and farmers contributed to city building. That there's not a natural linear progression of civilization that we don't exactly know for sure, but we know that different types of groups of people with different interests um, and different lifestyles all were moving through the Americas. So, uh, Paisley Five Mile Point Caves in Oregon, for example, a team uncovered 14,400-year-old human feces flecked with seeds from desert parsley and other plants, not the kinds of comestibles that advocates of the Big Game Hunters scenario expected to find on the menu. So, we are seeing people that, yes, they eat big game, but parsley, that is an herb. So, what... If you are growing plants, in what ways are they um, having a lifestyle that is not just purely based on chasing protein, but maybe is about understanding their environment? In order to be able to eat parsley, you need to be able to understand that you can eat parsley. Um, where does it grow? How does it grow? Um, so these are really important things to think about. A lot of what we're doing in this time period is just trying to get a bigger picture uh, of what life was like then, and we just don't know for sure. So the next slide, you can see this sort of uh, gray-white map. It says a coastal route for the first Americans. Um, here are different places in which they have found those Clovis tools, those tools, um, as well as these pre-Clovis people. So it says the dark blue circles are pre-Clovis age sites, and the light blue circles are Clovis age sites. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. Okay, now the reason why this is important is because there are potentially, there's thousands of years in between pre-Clovis and Clovis sites. Now we've been able to uh, pinpoint these dates with carbon dating um, and pinpoint exactly within a time frame how old these objects are. But what's interesting is that the presumption that once they moved through, they never went back is completely false because we know that people kept leaving new tools or, uh, later and later in these same sites. So it's very important. Let's take a look. Uh, what I want to do today is I think it's important to look at Polynesia. And the reason why is because I lived in Hawaii and I taught American studies there. And oftentimes in America, as I was saying before in a previous lecture, we only think about America as like the mainland. Like if it doesn't fit on that map, we're not, we're not really concerned with it. And a lot of times that reduces our narratives in America to perhaps white versus black, um, or it's only about the history of America beginning with Columbus and interacting with Native Americans, but American history is very diverse. And so you'll be reading later on in the course, but there is this famous historian, uh, Asian and Asian American studies scholar, uh, Okihiro, Gary Okihiro, uh, who argues that America actually begins in Asia. Um, and so it's important to look at, for example, the Polynesian Triangle, which you can see here in the map. Yeah to get a better picture of perhaps the cyclical movement, that it's not linear from like left to right, Russia to America, um, but that perhaps we can look at it more cyclically. And if we look at it more cyclically, um, perhaps we can see better connections between these people and their motives. So for example, with the Polynesian Triangle, um, you have many different nations that are within this Polynesian Triangle, because we're looking at like, thousands of square miles in the ocean here. Uh, and so what you can see here is that different types of food and tools um, are moving throughout. So for example, we, you in Asia, do not get the sweet potato until someone goes to South America and gets it and brings it back. Okay, that's the same with bottle gourds, which are it's this type of squash that hardens. And so you can actually use it as a bowl. Uh, I'm not sure what it's called in uh, in Korean. But again, those those are really popular where I'm from in South Georgia. And those, again, don't come 
to Asia until someone from the Americas goes to get it. The same is interestingly enough with chicken. So uh, chicken is widespread in the Americas. It, it's really important in our food culture and yet there is no chicken in the Americas until someone brings it from Asia and takes it to the Americas. Uh, these aren't happening, again, like I said, in a linear process. There's not like one person came with a chicken and then that's it. Um, it's constantly happening over and over and over again. So the same things are happening with language, with people, with plants, with food culture, with aesthetics. And so what's really cool on the next slide that you can see are, uh, uh, it's huge wall. So like imagine this is like 30 feet wide. This is in the Hawaii State Museum. Um, and all these boats are called double-hulled canoes. Um, and that's because they ride along the top of the ocean. They don't ride in the water like uh, some of the like European vessels that you'll see at this time period. They, they skip along the top. Uh, it helps you ride like bigger waves better and things like that. So what's interesting is that these are all different types of double-hulled canoes from all across Polynesia. So even though these countries might be hundreds if not thousands of miles apart, kilometers apart, um, they have, because of these cyclical routes, um, these migration routes, um, have many similarities in their language, in their culture, in their types of fishing, in their types of boats, um, in, as well as what we're going to look at in how that they're able to navigate. So um, what if you're learning Hawaiian history that it's actually not until recently, recently meaning like the 1970s, uh, that it it was told when or let me back up okay so we're gonna look at the polynesian star compass now a compass as you hopefully know is perhaps maybe you're used to that with camping it's like a circle and there's a, a magnetic pull to the north or south or west or wherever you're headed in the right direction okay so the Polynesian star compass does not rely on that. If you're navigating across the ocean, how do you get from Korea to Polynesia? You have to use the stars. Uh, so let's look at the slide in which you can see a circle and it says see your handout, but you're listening to this online, so there is no handout. You can see a bird in the middle of the circle. Um, now what I want you to uh, realize here is that each of those um, cardinal points, the North Star um, and, and other points, what they have done is that they have actually mapped the sky. So if you are looking out your window and you see the night sky and it's completely dark blue, um, and you see the flat ground underneath you, and there's just this sky all above you, we can't actually see the stars that well here. Um, but what they realize then is that the stars, these points in the sky, rotate around us. And so what they did was memorize the pathways of, the, of those points and how they rotated around. So that way you could know exactly. If you can memorize how this point, for example, how the North Star always stays by itself. It never moves. That's why it's a fixed point and used for your compass. All the rest of it um, moves from left to right. So left up all the way around the globe and around to the right. So if you skip to the next slide and you see the boat. So imagine, again, that's a double hull canoe. That boat is on the ocean. And they know which way they're going, whether they're headed to the south or the west or whatnot, because each of those where it says like haka, Nilani, Manu, um, Aina, uh, Naleo, each of those is what, uh, like a house, a house of stars, like a, a section, a map. Uh, and so what you're going to do is that the stars, when those begin, so like you're in the middle of the ocean and where the, the line of the water and the sky meet right where the water stops, like right on the horizon, stars are going to start appearing out of the water that makes sense. They go straight up above your head 
And then they go to the other side. They go to the section all the way to the right, all the way to the water because their earth is round and they're circling. So um, if you can, again, it might make a little bit more sense if you look at the next slide in which you can see that. They had to understand the world as a sphere. And so they know that at different times of the year um, and in different houses, they know they can memorize the roots of the stars and then know exactly where they are in the world. Now, why is this really important? It's, it's, oh, hold on, let me tell you one more thing. So the next slide, if you see the hand, you can actually do this as well. So if we were able to see stars, um, what you can find is that in between where about like your, my hand is a little bit smaller, so it's where like my knuckle of my first finger meets with the, the as far uh, south as I can stretch my thumb, that is 10 degrees. And so if you're looking up at the sky and imagine there's a sky full of stars, you, that, use that as your point of measurement. And then you can measure things. Like you, if that is 10 degrees, then we can measure how many degrees further. Um, so it's actually quite remarkable, honestly. Like I, if you put me in the middle of the ocean and give me, told me that this is how this works, I'm positive I still couldn't be able to get home. Um, but I think what's really important, like why is this important to study, is because uh, Polynesians are masterful navigators. Like Koreans, uh, Asians being able to move to Polynesia, being able to move to the uh, Americas, um, they are masterful at migration, masterful at navigators. Uh, and so, and yet this, this component is lost. There's a perception that came later that was uh, characterized by uh, white settlers in which when white settlers came over, they perceived Native Americans as stagnant, that they just wanted to be by themselves, that um, they were sort of set in their ways, un uncivilized, they were stuck. And in particular in Hawaii, this is a stereotype that was used to describe Hawaiians about how it was just a pure accident that Polynesians even managed to get to that series of islands. And so therefore, um, because they, the only reason they stayed is because they couldn't figure out how to get anywhere else. Um, this is actually what white Western colonists told a lot of indigenous people. You're not smart. You don't have any scientific skill. It's just pure coincidence and you're not that civilized. And let me tell you what civilization is. Uh, it's not until the uh, activist movements of the 60s and 70s that that is when, uh, for example, in Hawaii, Hawaiian activists started to learn about the Polynesian Star Compass. They had to go all the way back to the Philippines and other parts of Polynesia and uh, record oral history interviews about like how does this migration work. Um, finally, being able to um, build uh, the double hull canoe that they called the Hokulea. Um, and it was in the, I believe, the late 70s in which they traveled around the world. It was their first time being able to travel around the world using only this method of the Polynesian star compass and their hands uh, as tools of measurement. It is miraculous. Um, so that is a really uh, important point. Some other components that we're going to be learning about today is different aspects of the lifestyle. So again, on the next slide, it says, so what's the so what? What does learning about Polynesian navigation teach us about larger patterns? Because in this class, I'm always trying to get you to think about the so what, like why should we care? It's not just like it's neat or fun to know, but uh, what does this tell us about history? What does this tell us about those people? Um, and that there has been a presumption of the, the, the people that are Native Americans that are indigenous are less smart that they're survivalists, that they're only following those mastodons because they're hungry. Um, and the more that we are researching this area, the more that we are finding that people are not linear, people are not just survivalists, people are creative, people are um, moving cyclically, uh, people in this time period are artists, they're creative, um, they have uh, interesting thoughts and ideas and that we cannot 
center ourselves in this narrative and project what we think is smart onto them. That they're perhaps even more global than we even are today, even though it, it, it feels like we are in an incredibly global world. Okay, so next slides. Guiding questions for today. What are the sources used to tell the history of First Nations? Are these sources different from the sources we use to tell the history of European colonization? If so, how? Okay, so we had last night's 500 Nations homework uh, using examples from the film, reading, podcast, or other sources as evidence. You are answering what are the sources used to tell the history of First Nations, and you came up with a list of five examples. And so we have a lot of different examples that we're going to be talking about in this um, in this lecture. But in particular, hopefully, what you can begin to see a little bit from the documentary is that there's sources from First Nations, primary sources, and then there's sources about First Nations, often from outsider perspectives, in this time period, European colonizers. Now, who when originally when we were talking about that story of what are the different factors that can shape how we tell a story um one of those things is is it a primary source or a secondary source is it from the original person or is it from someone else second hand about that person because when we're talking about this we get into bias um and how oftentimes our own interest in particular, in this time period, European colonization, they like to call it like the age of discovery. Like people are just having fun and circling the globe just for their own interest. But every time that they are um, so, you know, quote unquote, exploring, those explorations cost a ton of money. It is not free to circumnavigate the globe and pay for people and pay for um, these massive boats food supply, like a whole team of people when we have like multiple ships. Um, it's not free. These are backed. These are backed by companies that are seeking to build trade routes and they are backed by the crown. Um, for example, Columbus, um, he's not just sailing the ocean blue. He's backed by the uh, king and queen of, of Spain. So that is really important is that uh, the, these so-called explorers are going out and finding these new routes and interacting with these people, but they also want to bring back information to the people that are funding this route about um, what can these people give us? How can we take advantage of these people? What can we exploit from their land? What can we extract from it? Those at the end of the day are the reasons uh, why a lot of notes are being taken about First Nations today. So let's look at the next slide. It says, sources we can use to study Hawaiian history. So I'm just, again, keep giving you more examples about Hawaii. So sources from Hawaiians. So linguistics, um, you can compare languages across the Pacific. When I was teaching American studies in Hawaii, um, we would actually pull out the Hawaiian dictionary and break out into groups. And what do we see? What are the patterns that we see? And some of the patterns that we would see are um, that there are how many different types of potatoes, um, which tells us that those potatoes are from the Americas. Um, how many different types words for fish? Um, how many different types? The words for the fish would often mean where the fish is located. Um, like it doesn't, it's not an arbitrary name. It would be like a, a, a descriptor of like where the fish is located, what time of the year does it come out? Um, something about it, like learning it as part of an ecology. So linguistics, some of the words from about different animals and food and culture from across Polynesia are connected with one another. And so we can see what's important to them through their language. Uh, excavation, as we saw a lot in the film, of excavating different artifacts, like tools, um, features, meaning like um, uh, different types of architecture, um, landscapes, as far as like we could definitely see that with the mounds, um, vast cities that are being built. 
We also have lab techniques, which is a method to help us study organic makeup. Like what are the actual components inside an object? Um, studying the chemical makeup of artifacts and contemporary genetics of people in the environment. Um, why is this important? Because being able to study the chemical makeup of artifacts can tell us like what are the um, organisms that are alive then. So like just like I was telling you before about being able to, to study the what is inside the feces of a human from 14,000 years ago can tell us what kind of food they're eating. Um, and not just that they ate parsley that day, but that widely... Uh, contradicts an argument that they were only chasing big game. So how does this new fact about um, what they were eating and how that impacted their feces, how does that uh, contradict some of our, our arguments that we were holding as um, assumption about their lifestyle? Okay, so we have visual analysis like petroglyphs and tapa, and I'm going to show you some images of those. But essentially, petroglyphs, if you break that down, is a glyph is an image, uh, and petra meaning rock, and uh, tapa. Um, you'll see later on that it is different types of visual communication that is on a tapestry. We also have oral and gestural traditions. So for example, the hula. Um, hula, we think of it as like a specific types of dance, but hula means dance. Uh, it's kind of like if you were in India, you wouldn't say chai tea, like chai means tea. Uh, but the, the hula is never a dance as far as like the way we might think of it as like purely leisure or entertainment, that hula was a critical component of storytelling. And so the reason why that there are certain hand movements and gestures in hula is because you're telling a story. So if the story is about um, the sun falling, your hand might rise to uh, mimic the sun in the sky moving down. Um, this is important because uh, they have different, like storytelling is really important. It's again, not just a form of entertainment. It's about culture. It's about community building. It's about religious and cultural practices. So for example, example the Kumulipo is the origin story for Hawaii. Um, and the component of that is poetry, it's hula, it's um, this collective uh, communication uh, about who we are and where we're from. And as part of this, like the land is named for the gods and the stories that we tell each other about the gods and the land are connected. Everything is connected. The gods, the land, us, it is inside of us. But oral and gestural traditions are important. Uh, and they're not just entertainment. Written traditions. So we have some uh, uh, indigenous people had all, like all of them had oral languages. Some of them have different types of written language and different types of communication that way. Um, we definitely get a ton of translations circa the 1800s as call, like white Europeans are interacting with indigenous people. But there are some, for example, in Mexico that they had vast books, like they had like libraries of books um, of things that they had written well before uh, colonizers showed up. And then we also have, uh, as a type of source, as contemporary experiential learning. So as I was telling you about the Hokulea, the boat in which in order to practice, like learn about the Polynesian star compass, in order to learn about it, because they don't have anyone doing that anymore, they have to build the boat and they've got to do it. So how do you, how do you learn how the original Asian, Asians came to Polynesia? You got to do it. Like how do you get the boat from Asia to Polynesia using only your hands in the sky? Um, so experiential learning means part of how we're learning is through the process. Um, an easy way that you can see this is like, for example, if you are in Utah, they have a lot of public history sites about the first white settlers, like, a, like, especially like Mormons, the, um, Northern Europeans that come over, for example, like an important day in Utah is called Pioneer Day in which you're supposed to learn about those white settlers and how like arduous their journey was. But part of that 
is experiential learning in which like you don't someone doesn't just tell you like oh this is how that they made milk from scratch um you gotta do it you have to learn it and practice it and so in the point of practicing it there is knowledge in the experience and so therefore it's not only that the knowledge is then in your body but then you can share it with someone else okay next slide what did indigenous people value how did they communicate those values so we have art jewelry ornate clothing and tapestries carvings and sculptures petroglyphs pictographs etc um, lots of different types of things so first image slide we can see um, a, pet, a petroglyph in british columbia vancouver so you can see that they are drawing very ornate images on rock pretty much what you can find is that anywhere where there's a wall if it's a rock it's inside of a cave indigenous people are drawing and they're telling stories telling visual stories so the next slide you can see in utah the anasazi in utah this is the side of um a canyon if i'm not mistaken and um, these are images and again we can take best guesses of what these are um but we don't know for sure for example in the next slide we have hawaii and so because i was at the hawaiian the volcano national park in hawaii i can tell you what the with that museum there the national park what they argue is their best guess so um they call it petroglyphs in hawaiian is kiipohaku just means images carved in stone but i like to think of them like emojis so imagine you know 10,000 years from now and we can't uh, read their writing anymore it's kind of like these images carved in the wall are just like emojis we just have a bunch of emojis um, we're gonna know that the eggplant meant something spicy we don't maybe exactly know what it is maybe the more we research we might be able to figure it out um, but we don't know for sure. So in this, on the uh, volcano, on the lava rock, their best guess as far as what they think, why these images are there, is because what they know is that the volcano was considered a god, a birth mother god of Pele. And so uh, she is the sort of goddess mother of the earth. And so when you are pregnant uh, and or you've ha just had your your children, your birth children, um, their best guess is that they believe that you ventured to Pele as a way to document, like honor her and document that you have given birth. Um, and so their guess is that one circle is one child, like as you can see on the bottom picture, one circle means one child, two circles means two children, I mean, that's the guess. However, there's also images of uh, carved in the stone there of people surfing. So we don't exactly know what was compelling people to draw circles in certain patterns. Now, we have seen this in Mexico, though. They This is what I was telling you about, like, vastly ornate... Um, uh, sorry my brain died vastly ornate um, maps books um, descriptors about their culture okay and so what you can see here is that um this is actually a on the right it's a map so on the left you can see it's like a description um this is the aztecs it's a description of different types of of clothes accessories that they wore and the meaning behind them this is from that era so don't think this is like colonists european colonists later on describing it um this is from that era and so but on the right the right you can actually see sort of like a metaphorical map so if you looked up uh tenochtitlan that you would find that it's this area in, in Mexico, in which there are these islands that are connected by these waterways, um, and that the city where the um, uh, empire is, uh, as far as like the head of state, is at the center of where those waterways connect. Um, 
it's really cool. I give this lecture in um, Professor Rezul Hassan's class about how the reason why is because there's the integral to the waterways as far as being able to like limit invasion, but also it's taking advantage of how Mexico gets earthquakes and it's on a fault line. And so if you're in the water, there's a presumption that like water means there's no city, but that's actually incorrect. Like you know this um, from if you've been to Vietnam or other parts in which like there's vast cities uh, connecting through water, especially like markets. Um, and so here as well that in an earthquake, the safest place to be is actually on the water because you just like ride that wave. Um, so anyway, on the right is actually a map and it's sort of a symbolic map of the different areas and how of, um, uh, this empire and how it's separated, uh, and controlled by different, uh, groups of people, like sort of senators. So I say that we have like different complex types of um, visual and written language. Okay, so we have, as I was telling you before, the tapa of tapestries. Um, you can find that on um, cloth, and you can find that on the right in which you have um, makaloa, which is on baskets. And again, I want you to really think about how um, our own projection onto these objects. So uh, even, for example, on the right, you can see um, there's, if you were to look, to look closer, there are these different patterns. It's kind of ornate that a lot of uh, families would have specific patterns that are linked to their family, connected with uh, perhaps it is a job that they provide for the community or something about their story. Um, and so while we might see like, oh, that's just a bunch of lines or circles, that it's because we often think of patterns like this as just pure art and entertainment. In this time period, this is communication. Um, this is storytelling. This is religious and cultural practices. Um, this is just as much valuable as a written language. So don't center yourselves and your knowledge uh, in, in when you look at these objects. The next slide you can see is the Ahuula and the Mahiole, which is when you're getting to our chapter two with Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz in the Indigenous People's History, um, it talks about the Hawaiian feather helmet, the Mahiole, and part of royalty fashion for Hawaiians was feathers. So for example, when we were just looking at that slide with Tenochtitlan and on the top right, you can see the turquoise, um, turquoise uh, gold, those are areas in Mexico. I mean, those are uh, important resources in Mexico. Um, however, Hawaii does not have turquoise and it does not have gold. The whole island is pretty much lava rock. Uh, and so what they do have, their vast resources, are these beautiful birds. And so um, they, the royalty uh, actually collected, they paid these sort of servants, or perhaps they were slaves, I'm actually not sure, um, to collect bird feathers to build these like really ornate uh, capes and helmets and all different types of wear. And so... Again, thinking about how, like, instead of it's like, oh, it's cute, like, look at that cave. Uh, a piece of gold to you might be worth how many feathers to them because gold is worthless there. There is no gold. Uh, on the right, you can have actually these, um, if you're in Hawaii, you'll see these different types of lei that are not just the flowers, but these, um, they're kukui nuts. Kukui nuts is this nut from a tree, the kukui tree. Uh, and the reason why they wore those is because they're wearing seeds. It's a way for them to be able to carry seeds across the ocean. Um, and so it's not just like they're carrying seeds and they're pretty boring. They want to make them ornate and beautiful um, and decorative as well. We just oftentimes in our culture, I don't know how many times I need to say this, our approach to art uh, and decor is um, pure. Is a lot of times perceived as like purely aesthetic. It's only entertainment or for leisure. Um, but for an indigenous people, there is not that distinction. It is one and the same. So 
Again, returning to those questions, what are the sources used to tell the history of First Nations and what are, are these sources different from the sources we use to tell the history of European colonization? If so, how? We have sources also, we just looked at a ton of sources from Hawaiians. We also have, have sources about Hawaiians from outsiders. We have written documents. Uh, so for example, like um, if we, if it was a European colonist, they would often uh, bring journalists um, that would write diary entries. If there were not um, Columbus himself writing diary entries, you have many people on the ship that are writing diary entries. That's their job. Um, you have person assigned on the ships to do sketches um, and create these images. You have oral histories in which you have, especially once um, European colonizers begin to take slaves and or entice uh, indigenous people to return with them to their homeland, to Europe, they would then be able to translate so you'd have a translator. So being able to take those oral histories uh, and record them is very important. We have songs. So actually when I learned this when I was teaching American Studies in Hawaii, that the uh, sailors. So Hawaii was actually on this whaling route. So if you were interested in that time period, you didn't have oil from the earth. You needed oil from whales. And so whales were really really important uh and so hawaii's on this route it's kind of like the last stop that you get to before you go um up north where the whales are and so the songs that sailors would sing to each other on these boats weren't just again like we like to think of songs like dance like hula it's just like oh it's just fun and we're just singing songs but the songs are stories, and so there's a song called Joe Kanaka um, about, and Kanaka is the word in Hawaiian that means uh, Hawaiian. That's their word for the Hawaiian people, Kanaka. And so the song is about Joe Kanaka and how they, how Joe is a sailor on this boat and he's working on the boat. And so if you actually like pay attention to the, some of the songs, they can actually tell you how Europeans are even thinking of indigenous people at this time period. Now, don't get me wrong. If you show up to a world in which they do not speak your language, you're going to get a ton of inaccurate translations. Um, you are not going to know what they're saying, and you're going to take your best guess, just like we're kind of doing about, like, what do these things mean? The problem is, is that when the more we apply our own biases, so the more we think, like, oh, these people are dumb, um, and they're not that smart, and we can easily manipulate them, the more we're going to make wrong translations. We're not really interested in hearing um, exactly what they think, just how can we manipulate them into doing what we want them to do. Uh, oh, and then the last but not least, there's travel guides, which sounds a little silly, but uh, I, I put it there to remind you that um, anytime we have these so-called like explorers, um, for example, Captain Cook going to Hawaii, he is there to, with his team of people, his army of people, to record information, to give back to the crown, to give back to the company, to sell this information. Um, imagine if um, you, there, no one had been a Jeju before, and you are the first person. You get into a kayak and you go over to Jeju. Um, now, in this time period, what we want to do is, uh, instead of you just going by yourself, we're going to say UAC sends you there because UAC is interested in expanding its territory and we want to see what valuable resources are in Jeju. So you kayak there, you land there, you find out how, oh, there's actually people there and they tell you that like, oh, fishing is really important and oh, this is really important. Um, these artifacts are very important. This is our, um, this is our religious and cultural practice. You are going to write all of that down and you're going to create a map, especially in particular, where is a place that we can dock boats? Where is a place that you want to spend the night? Where it's just like when you're leaving on Google Maps, when you're leaving reviews for people, they did the same thing then. And this opens up a huge pathway for more colonization. Um, it's why actually if you went to, if you go to Hawaii, when I was living there, I just lived there for a few years, but there's like a, 
anti-Instagram movement in Hawaii of locals, locals meaning like Hawaiians, um, locals that will not post the location of beaches that they go to or if they go to a waterfall or a rainforest because so many foreigners like uh, mainlanders come and find on Instagram places to go and they then they they go there, they overrun it, it becomes crowded, they like put their trash there, it becomes a tourist spot, and then locals can't go there anymore. And so there is a movement there of like, do not give people the travel guide to our Hawaii. So even in this time period, you can see that the knowledge that you collect on a place and share with other people, um, that can be marketed. And then those people can be marketed. So last but not least, we have the extraction of artifacts. Um, for example, the we've all been looking at artifacts. And in fact, you're going to be, when you listen to the, um, the podcast episode on the Hawaiian feather helmet, it is in particular focused on the extraction of artifacts from Hawaii. So for example, there are more Hawaiian artifacts in the Peabody Essex Museum. It's this tiny museum in the middle of um, New England. There's more Hawaiian artifacts there than there are in Hawaii. There's actually more Hawaiians, more people on the mainland than there are in Hawaii. Uh, and so extraction there's a long history and colonization of extraction so a lot of times the way that things are perceived is that colonists came over there's an interaction and then they left or conquered or whatnot but a lot of times we have an extraction of artifacts of goods of resources of people and it's causing this tension and movement we also uh, have as part of this tension forced assimilation and the banning of indigenous language and culture. And we have the forced diaspora of people. Diaspora of, um, the way I like to think of it is, uh, dia means across and spora means seed. And so diaspora like a dandelion, um, in which if you, it's the type of like weed flower that if you blow on it, you see the seeds fly in the air. And so they move across. Sometimes they move in giant patterns. Sometimes one just falls. So for your homework, which I had to double check, sorry. Um, that is the participation that you're gonna submit on Canvas. This is that your question. What is a diaspora and what are five factors forcing a diaspora? So we've already talked about this a little bit with Clovis, um, but in particular, I want you to think about indigenous people um, and because we're beginning to talk about colonization. So provide two examples for how a diaspora might impact the work of an historian, just like we were talking about of extraction, assimilation, and so on. Give me two specific examples. And I don't want one word answers, I want full sentences. So make sure you explain what you mean. Upload your answer to 003 in class participation only on Canvas, and it's just due before the next class. So, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact me by email uh, and/or see me during in-class office hours. And until next class, see you then. Mm -hmm.